Podcast at the end of the end of history, Bunga Cast with myself Alex Hochili, Philip Cunliffe, and George Hor. Hello. Hi. I say the one and only. I believe that there must have been some people who used the phrase "the end of the end of history" before us. No, they didn't. We used it. We're the only mm, ones, and I'm, we I'm did sure reserve. We reserve copyright on every possible mention of it. In fact, we should ask. We should ask ChatGPT whether or not when it was used for the first time. Good. We will um, we'll put that in the to-do um, and discuss at the meeting tomorrow. In the meantime, though, I wanted to say that we're, at, at the very least, the only podcast, the only media or political intellectual project that is explicitly framed around the end of the end of history. But you can't help but notice, looking around over the past couple of months, years, that the phrase pops up. Uh, evermore. Even the contemporary thinker most associated with the end of history, which is, of course, Francis Fukuyama, recently said that this is the end of the end of history, before then rolling back in a different interview a couple of months later. He hasn't made his mind up. We certainly have. Uh, I have a Google alert set up on the end of the end of history. And over the past months, certainly over the past year, uh, I've been getting a lot more alerts the phrase is being used um, across a whole different range of um, topics and types of media. But the basic idea is that something that's just happened shows that it is the end of the end of history. And that is often related to the Ukraine war or to rising inflation or to COVID um, or to um, financial turbulence, various other things, and often a combination of these, um, what some people like to call the poly crisis. So anyway, we obviously have discussed the end of the end of history many points in time, but today we're going to discuss it in relation specifically to artificial intelligence and to technological change more broadly. Phil. Yeah. So this was stimulated by a um, blog post um, by Tyler Cowan, who um, blogs on Marginal World. And we've spoken a bit about Tyler Cowan before. Um, I've never really been uh, kind of a fan of the cult of Cowan. It's a very kind of his persona and his blog in itself, I think, is a very kind of idiosyncratic artifact of a particular kind, of a particular phase and kind of internet culture. But I'd be curious to know if um, if any listeners are fans of Tyler Cowen or if they read his blog regularly. Anyway, um, uh, some about a week ago or two weeks ago, in 27th of March, he posted this thing which talked about, what does he put it, the inevitable turn in human history. And in the post, he had two propositions which is that the era of safety for America is ending in line with the decline of America's um, global hegemony. And linked to that, we have on on the cusp of an era of tremendous technological transformation, nothing less than a technological revolution, which he is, you know, he finds the most, uh, 
dramatic, perhaps even hyperbolic ways to talk about comparing it, say, to the um, uh, Gutenberg, you know, the invention of the Gutenberg printing press or even fire. Um, the discovery of fire and both of those are kind of extreme perhaps comparisons i mean perhaps and it's worth talking through why they're extreme perhaps he can be indulged the kind of flourish or the excess because at the end of the day it's a short blog post not even an essay let alone a kind of more considered scholarly or rigorous piece of work anyway um what was interesting to my mind was the fact that he kind of even though he doesn't use the phrase the end of the end of history, so we can't claim any copyright on this one, he nonetheless makes the case essentially that for the last 30, 40 years, Americans have been living in a bubble, partly due to the extent of American hegemony. Um, and at the same time, the, the relative kind of economic and technological stasis and that those things are over now, both of them. And so it prompted to my mind the kind of question or the question that it raised in my mind was whether or not it was possible. I mean, you know, we've spoken a great deal on this pod about um, the end of the end of history as a global, as a kind of systemic phenomenon, a global phenomenon, a matter of uh, not only kind of unipolarity and bipolarity, but also the political party, political structures within countries throughout the world and how these things are interconnected. So he, meant, he talks about that, but what we haven't really spoken about is how far the end of the end of history or the end of history is linked to particular kinds of technological um, dynamics and whether or not perhaps the end of the end of history is being driven by technological transformation or might coincide with a technological revolution driven by AI. And so that essentially is the, um, you know, that essentially is the kind of thought is how far we can link technological revolution to the end of the end of history, um, or indeed to kind of, you know, how we link technological change and transformation, technological revolution to er earlier ruptures in history. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's a blog post at the end of the day, so you can't kind of, um, you know, uh, there's a limit to how much you can expect of it, I suppose. But um, there are two points, I think, which are worth kind of engaging with seriously from it. The first is that he kind of, um, that is Tyler Cowan, he kind of sweeps away all the commentary ranging from skeptical to positive about what the, you know, or um, pessimistic, you know, that AI poses an existential threat to the most kind of positive. He sweeps it all away and says it is each of these scenarios is just as kind of um, remote as the other and not to be, not to be lured by the, the kind of the, the drama of existential risk into overstating its probability compared to more kind of benign possible scenarios resulting from um, resulting from AI. And he says, you know, he says like just as with the printing press or as with the um, discovery of oil and the rise of, um, you know, the use of oil as fuel, that it's impossible to actually capture the range of outcomes that will occur as a result of this, of a kind of technological breakthrough or revolution. And therefore you have to be radically agnostic about it. So that's the first thing that I think is worth kind of considering the position for radical agnosticism on the implications of a particular kind of technology. Linked within that is the comparison, right? As to, you know, how far you can compare um, a technological breakthrough like these AI chatbots with the you know printing press or with um, the use of um, fossil fuels 
for transportation and um, industry. And then the second point, and I'll leave it, you know, I'll hand over to you guys to ask you what you think after this. But the second point, which I think is actually a very good one, is, and even I'd say, though I expect that Tyler Cowen himself would reject the label or not take it as a positive, but even a dialectical thought, where he says this idea that you could kind of um, arrest these trends or that you could um, opt for stasis over change or that as if um, or that the period of kind of this period this bubble as he calls it of living outside of history as if you could prolong that period it's entirely impossible and that in fact that we already are in the flux of all that change and therefore it has to be embraced irrespective of whether or not the scenarios that could emerge from it turn out to be negative and that seems, you know, I mean, that's a very, I mean, it's a kind of, the claim in itself is, I think, the right one, but also it's a, it's a dialectical thought, it seems to me, which um, Cowan, given he's like some kind of Randian, Hayekian mashup, probably would, you know, not find particularly edifying. But this idea that we, as he says, we should take the plunge is, um, you know, seems to me to be the right conclusion to take, irrespective of what you might think of um, the link between AI and possible social change. Yeah, I mean, just on this, <clears throat> I think the this idea that, so he sort of says, for my entire life and a bit more, there have been these two essential features of the basic landscape, the first, American hegemony over much of the world, the second, an absence of truly radical technological change. I think it reminded me of reading um, Hobsbawm's History of the 20th Century and kind of describing the changes that, would have happened in people's everyday lives in the aftermath of the Second World War, all of these kind of consumer goods. So it wasn't so much technological change, but the the diffusion of like washing machines, dishwashers, all, all of these things that basically just transformed TVs, transformed people's like experience of, of the world. And, you know, that was my, you know, grandparents, not my not sort of my parents' generation, not and not my generation either. I think there is something in that the experience of everyday life in in the in in my life as well has been, you know, not massively changed by technology. Obviously, there's been a lot of discourse that the internet changed everything, but I don't think it did. Not in that sense of like, what is your time spent doing? How do you live your life? How do you you know how do you experience that? actually i would i would tend to to agree with him that and this whether this puts you outside of history or not or whether the the combination of those two things does i think that is a you know is a valid starting point that it there is a sort of a feeling that the technologies that we have experienced have not been qualitatively changing our our lives and then of course there's the question as to whether uh, ai is going to do this circa 2023 as cowan says but i think it is a fairly that's a fairly good starting point that, yeah, we haven't seen truly radical technological change in, in our lifetimes. Yeah. I mean, it makes yeah. me think like, you know, my grandparents, so, you know, they lived in the era where you still have a horse and cart as a significant mode of transportation, um, even in urban settings where they grew up in kind of urban industrial England of the early 20th century. But they lived to see, um, you know, they lived to see the moon landings and that kind of scale of um Trans technological industrial transformation. I don't think there's any. I mean, I think it's safe to say my. You know, I'm younger than Tyler Cowan, luckily, but there is nothing comparable to that scale of change in our lifetimes. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I want to come on to technology maybe in a bit, but I wanted to make some comments firstly about the end of history, the end of the end of history, or what it would mean for history to return. I mean, the thing that's striking about what Tyler Cowen says and right at the top of his blog is the point about American hegemony over the much of the world and the relative physical safety for Americans. It reminds me that when you're talking about these questions, you're always, you know, kind of theorizing it from a particular point of view in a particular geographical region of the world. And the American end of history maybe seems probably more profound, but also much longer. You know, the, the American end of history could really be dated from the end of the Second World War, perhaps. Um, whereas the European That's like one... the default for the world, right? America is the, like, if, if you don't, if you don't put in a country that you're playing the game on, it will default to to america in the 20th right. century at least, well right? yeah probably even more and but even more so the further you go forward it's and nowadays maybe um maybe we're at the last stage of which it defaults to the u.s but i mean so I, you I, mentioned I, korea and vietnam but but well okay but those were pe- being drafted then so people being drafted into those wars was maybe the last point um at which uh, so you know maybe history ends for the u.s in 1975 which is you know more or less the beginning of post-modernity by chance um but anyway, you know, and our approach has been theorized probably more from a European perspective. Um, when we had Branko Milanovic on, he uh, said, you know, he didn't really buy the end of history thing. He thinks it's kind of a Western European thing. If you were in Eastern Europe, um, history didn't really end. And that applies in Latin America or East Asia, um, perhaps even more so. Um, so, I mean, do I guess... you believe the, in the end of history? What are you saying, Alex? Well, I'm, I'm setting up the... the <laughs> I'm undermining the, the issue before affirming it. Um, but or the concept rather than the issue. Um, I, I think more the point would be that it's the stage at which um, macro level it, it kind of hits directly at the micro level pretty immediately or that kind of the chain of mediation there is is fairly solid, right? So that you have war in Ukraine and suddenly there's food riots in Africa because of uh, uh, wheat prices. Now, note that that's the opposite of the like butterfly effect idea um, where it's actually something really small happening, like a butterfly beating its wings and a hurricane being set off on the other side of the world. What I'm saying is yeah. more that the hurricane set off on the other side of the world, which is history or historical events, um, affects you very intimately. Even it makes your butter little butterfly wings flatter, uh, flutter rather. Um, so it gives you butterflies. It gives you butterflies, <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, I think that's more the way we, sh- we should think about it in the terms in which we should evaluate, you know, um, kind of the end of the end of history um but i so think and, thing, and we should think about technology maybe in those terms as well yeah i mean one thing that cowan says in this is um you know he says he he doesn't quite you know he doesn't quite bet on the complete unraveling of american hegemony um and makes a contingent on how ukraine and um how ukraine and, and uh, taiwan play out as geopolitical um conflicts but he says you know hardly anyone you know including yourself is prepared to live in actual moving history it will panic many of us disorient the rest of us and cause great upheavals in our fortunes both good and bad in my view the good will considerably outweigh the bad at least from losing to not number one he's talking about ai over um over the wars in ukraine but i do understand that the absolute quantity of the bad disruptions will be high so, I mean, he makes, you know, the claim that there is also the incapacity to kind of deal with uh, a period of a period of uh, social and political disruption that's simply more fluid, um, unpredictable, unstable, and in which there are actual stakes, you know. 
And I think, I mean, you know, again, I mean, I suppose it's probably it's probably true. We should talk we should talk more directly about the about the the kind of the um, implicit claim in in the piece, which is the link between technology or technological revolution and historical change, the end of history and the end of the end of history. And so before we do that, though, I'm just curious, have, have either of you experimented with with the chat GPT or the new AI large language models that are available open access? Experimented how? That sounds very <laughs> intimate. Um, no, I, I haven't. I haven't used one of these. Well, I'm not. Um, yeah, I'm not an undergraduate student needing to write essays <laughs> at the last minute. No, no but I haven't even played around with it. Allowed. I, I like, unlike I mean, most people. Uh, yeah, I haven't even played around with it because I, I, when there's like a new shiny thing that comes about, I tend to wait around a couple of months until, until I decide to go. Yeah, actually, maybe I'll. I say experiment, so it requires a bit of, Mm. I mean, I don't know, and I'd be interested to hear from listeners if they've experimented with it. When I say experiment, it's like, I mean, if I'm sure you guys um, remember kind of the first, the first iterations of Google, you had to learn, you know, there was more kind of, um, it was more specificity involved in how you constructed searches in order to get the benefit of the search. Right, um, and you had to learn how to construct a search. I mean, it wasn't like a great deal of learning, but, and it's a similar thing. Like there are different kinds of prompts that you need to provide in order to get the benefit of the response on the Chat GPT. So that's what I was curious about. But I guess um, no. I mean, we already have. we already have a forum to uh, to chat and to try and improve our our, our responses and our questions with, um, or at least at least the three of us do. I mean, that's a podcast, right? It's like chat GPT in beta where you're like, you're having conversation with two or more other people who you assume are not robots, but might be. And you try and Im- improve their responses by um, better prompts. Yeah. It's a bit like chat, chat great politics time. That's what the GPT yeah, exactly. stands for. Um, no, I, I can't really see the appeal to, to be honest. It's like, yeah, I mean, maybe I didn't see the appeal of Google at the time and it, you know, did it change my life by giving me yeah, that's the question. quicker did information? Um, I guess it, it, in some ways, it's like it, it did because it's, it changes the way that you interact with, with information to a certain extent. But I think those claims that like now you don't need to teach kids knowledge or facts or whatever because you can just Google it. It's not a, it doesn't change it that fundamentally. It's just a, you know, it's it's epiphenomenal rather than anything deeper than that. I'm not sure. I'm sure it's affected my memory. Um, that my anyway, what I've were we made, talking about? That's, yeah, I make less. <laughs> I make less effort as a result of Google um, to remember. But I mean, I, I just want to make the... a point about information technology because this is the thing that we're discussing, and you know, I, I part of the I agree with the general point about technology has not accelerated very much um, for all the froth about um, about IT and the kind of things that we carry around with us for the past 10 years, um, which is both a computer, a calculator, a phone, blah, 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 right? Um, but th- that, like, it hasn't transformed the world in which in the way that the arrival of the railways might have done if you were, you know, a peasant somewhere or, you know, what, you know, the, the airplane or the kind of washing machine even. Um, but at the same time, maybe we, we need to examine it on in different terms because what it, se- what it seems to do is a change in consciousness 
or maybe just exclusively a change in consciousness, the way we think about the world, the way we remember, the way we think about history, all these kinds of things. Um, so it's well, a like, change that happens more inside your head than in the world and the structure of I'm society. Not sure that, yeah, I'm not sure that really, I mean, I'm not sure that really takes us much further. Um, I mean, I would say so. I mean, I've been just underwhelmed. You know, I've used it for, I've tried using it for professional purposes to see how far it could kind of make, um, you know, my uh, my uh, white collar clerical, the clerical white collar aspects of my job easier. And it doesn't, you know, I mean, it doesn't really seem to do much or it provides kind of enormously banal and um, pointless kind of, you know, responses. So... Isn't that the question the, isn't is, that white collar clerical life though? In almost, yeah, but not for me. Obviously, not for me, not for me because emails. I have to come up with more kind of creative oh. things. So okay, yeah. But the question is right. So I mean, if AI is able to, so he, I mean, I suppose it's worth specifying what these large language models are capable of doing or not, right? And in terms of what they're supposed to be able to do, is if they can kind of destate or what they'll disrupt to use the language is where you have large amounts of text or you need to go through large amounts of text such as legal contracts um generating kind of boilerplate boilerplate style um responses where large amounts of text are needed and you know this i suppose would erode the need for certain kinds of administrative and clerical tasks but at the same time free people up to focus on parts of the job which the ai can't do and again, though, I just can't see that that is, I mean, perhaps I'm missing, you know, perhaps the dimensions that I'm missing, which uh, Cowan is more excited about or he's more aware of. But that doesn't seem to me to be on a kind of um, a technological transformation on that scale, um, let alone on the scale of like, you know, kind of the printing press. And the important point about the printing press is, I suppose, that it, you know, it partly manifested the tra the emergence of the modern world from the pre-modern world. I mean, that's, you know, the emergence of print capitalism, so-called, right? Whereas there's no, you know, Cowan is certainly, you know, I can't see him suggesting that the emergence of AI is going to prompt a new, you know, kind of restructuring of social relations as profound as the shift from the pre-modern into the modern world. Um, so it's difficult to know, like, you know, concretely what, what it might mean. I guess, I mean, you know, the larger question is, I mean, this touches on the Gutenberg point, but are there other examples of technology stimulating end of history periods? And I think, I mean, That's the previous, question. the previous end of history, right. In with the Daniel Bell's end of ideology thesis, um, I can't recall if he mentions any specific technology, but it certainly corresponds with a particular era where, you know, the, the industrialized states seem to be converging around, um, you know, largely regulated economies to a greater or lesser extent, Keynesianism in the West, the um, command economy in the Soviet blocks of the East, and you have large bureaucratic state administrations. So that was the end, you know, that was an earlier kind of end of history period. So it's not connected to any particular um, technology i suppose uh, i'm not i i'm not sure i quite agree with that i think there is a technology which is quite central to that end of ideology end of politics um period and it's the tv so the idea being that you have mm. this new kind of way of distracting people 
keeping them entertained and it's very atomized it's individualized it it makes people that's marcuse that's not daniel bell right i I think it's the same i don't remember exactly bell's argument but i think that's the you know it's of a it's of a piece to the extent that you know it's like we now have a high enough standard of of living in in the west that we don't really need all this ideology all this politics stuff we're actually you know people are fine and i guess marcuse radicalizes it and you know, has a go at people seeing their souls in in their automobiles and just like being couch potatoes and all that. But I think there is a, you know, to generalize probably quite a lot, you could say there was cultural or political criticism in the in the post-war period, which did see the TV as like this harbinger of the the end of people being bothered to engage in mm. the public sphere because the private sphere had become so kind of um it had changed social relations because people were like yeah we can just or it was projected onto people that oh all those idiots in front of the idiot box are just going to stay home and chill out rather than engaging in ideological projects or politics and and that was the beginning of of mass man right um which was different from either a kind of a more liberal conception of the individual you know pertaining to the 19th century as well as as well as the first of the 20th century before the tv true but hang on but but also that the transformation from classes to masses right and that you just have this more this less differentiated kind of mass person out there and no, that tv was right. played a role in that or certainly maybe tv accelerated that i'm, I'm not entirely i don't entirely buy the tv argument i take but i take yeah. i mean i take but i take george's point about so consumerism right is uh or the con- kind of consumer technologies is part of the post-political era of um, of the post-war, or part of the post-political character of the post-war era um, and that period of high economic growth. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt of that. And even that it was kind of a conscious political choice, both East and West, right? Chris, I mean, that was part of Khrushchev's thing. We've got to divert from, you know, building um, coking plants to actually build manufacturing consumer goods for our citizens. Um, and in the West as well, you know, there was the sense that standards of living was a way to kind of neutralize political extremism. So I think the general point is right. The other aspect of it, the end of history point, and this, I guess, is a bigger question, which is beyond us today, I think, but is um, would probably subvert both any claims we would make on the pod and perhaps and Cowan too. But I'd think, and I don't know, I should go back to the Daniel Bell book, um, because I can't recall, but whether or not nuclear weapons are part of it, right? So whether or not the um, the idea that uh, nuclear weapons kind of essentially create geopolitical deadlock and therefore that you can't have a decisive transformation or redistribution of power or a great war in which, you know, kind of definitively settle certain kinds of political and strategic questions and reorg- reorders them. And so whether a new, you know, kind of a nuclear terror is part of the that kind of end of history is also a question, particularly, I guess, with respect to our current situation now, right? Because with yeah. Fukuyama's end of history, nuclear terror, its condition is the suspension of nuclear terror, right? Whereas now kind of the um, one of the things that's most disturbing about moving history, to use Tyler Cowen's expression, is the greater risk of nuclear conflict, right? Which we haven't had for a very long time as a result of the war in Ukraine. Um, I mean, I'm talking mm. out loud, I guess, here, thinking, no, trying to think through some of this. It's a good it's a good point, right? Because I guess in some ways, nuclear, like nuclear weapons and 
AI or, or TV are very like different sorts of technologies in that they're not they're not going to impact on your day-to-day life, but they determine the conditions at the very macro level, um, not at the micro level of butterflies, but at the macro level of, of hurricanes or, or whatever the, um, the model is that we're kind of working on here. But yeah, I guess it's, it's like, that's, that's another part of the context of, of that post-war period where it's like, okay. And it's making me think of, um, Raymond Williams as well and his, analyses of like you know the industrial revolution and the changes in the understanding of society that that came about in this time but i guess nuclear weapons is very very it's a different sort of way of society conceptualizing itself because it's not about the social relations at a you know community micro whatever level but rather like here are the ultimate conditions of possibility within you know within the political system um and yeah, I guess we we have now got that's part of the this one of the ends of ends of history is you know possibility of, of nuclear war, which we have of course done a I think that was our episode three hundred just to celebrate three hundred episodes. Well, let's talk about nuclear war. But yeah, it's back on the it's back not on the cards, but it's back possibly. Is there a technology if it's not AI? or the chat, the large language models, um, is there a technology that could conceivably stand for um, precipitating the end of the end of history? I mean, smartphones would be the only contender because it's the only significant kind of technological transformation in, I think, in the last 30 years or so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, just in terms of just mass uptake or that it you know, undergird so much else. It, it has to be IT generally, but really Does specifically. It? Well, so I remember reading something around the time of the Arab Spring, right? That the reason so there was this big question about how far um, they all, you know, how far all of the revolts were organized online in the Arab Spring. And I remember reading somewhere. I don't know how true it is, but I remember reading somewhere that the reason people went onto the streets was when the government started shutting down the internet and Facebook and all that, because they needed to find out what was going on. And so, you know, it was, you know, the government panicked, but the condition of public passivity, in fact, was keeping the internet going. And that's Mm, what would have kept people at home. Um, So, I mean, if there is a link between the kind of, um, you know, enhanced connectivity and smartphones and all that, um, it might've been, you know, it might've worked in kind of unanticipated ways. Yeah, no, I, I think that's entirely, you know, that's a fair point and it's entirely plausible that that, that is the the effect. There's other kind of, you know, sociological impacts, I guess. And I say sociological to distinguish it from political, I guess, um, which is, you know, the stuff of kind of our daily lives, interactions and so on, where, for example, you know, all these charts that have been circulating quite a bit recently about showing the... Um, just either declining living standards or, or particularly lots of social pathologies like teenage suicides and things like this in the US, which all which loads of people point out correlate exactly with the, kind of the launch of or the kind of generalization of the smartphone um, and social media. Now, I don't know how much to buy that. I certainly think it's part of the story. But, you know, that would seem to um, be a would be the kind of characteristic technology of our time. Now, does that mean that it somehow precipitates a return of history? No. I don't. I think we can. <laughs> I think we can rule that out. No, but does it play an element in it? You know, like not that it's like a cause, a simple cause and effect, but does it play an element? Yeah, I, I think we still haven't fully grasped the impact on consciousness that um, heightened connectivity 
has. I don't think we because if if you think about it, it's been it has only been you know ten odd years, um, and I, I think we have. I, you know, I I tweeted a thing the other day just thinking about how I always want to go back to the past and you know about how I'd like to time travel and it and I I'm always disappointed when I realize that'll never be possible. It's something that happens in like movies and that's it. Um, because I want to know what it feels and looks and smells like, you know, and, and, and how to, how people interacted and whatever back in 1920, you know, in Germany or whatever. Um, when, when would you go back to? I mean, I, back my to answer was always Weimar Germany, but, huh? No. 2012? No, Weimar Germany. I, I don't know. That was always my default answer, but um, I don't know. We'll come back Weird. to this. Maybe, maybe save this one for the end of the episode. Um, but what what is different and what will be different in in the future like let's say 30 years from now is that everything will have been so extensively documented from our period now that you it won't be even be a question of like what did it look like back in 2023 or even you know 2015 because there were an infinite number of photos recordings videos everything um people talking to camera people recording themselves talking about things so you basically have a kind of instant material for ethno for like infinite eth ethnographies to be written. So you don't need to go to the history books and try to discover how people conceived of themselves back in 1910 and maybe read novels and try to understand the, um, the sort of subjectivities that were portrayed in this novel. No, it'll be right there and apparent, supposedly. It'll demand some interpretation, but it'll be apparent because there's so much data to, to, to take from, you know, right? Yeah, this the podcast. You need you to go through the to. data. I mean, somebody has to study it right. and understand and, it. And that's where a lot of the AI will come in for sure. But I, what I, I think that just, in, in, it has a certain profound impact on our consciousness and how we relate and, and questions of memory and history that I don't think we've fully grasped yet. So I'm just reiterating a point that we might, we, I, it might be wrong to compare, you know, social media, the smartphone, whatever, to, you know, the railways, because they just, their impact on history points in very different directions and works on different planes. So it's worth talking about what we think of these, um, the most recent kind of efforts to restrain or control the technology. Um, apparently, ChatGPT is being banned in Italy, I think, and there was another country as well. Um, I don't know if that's just kind of a rumor or whether it's actually happening. But there's also the open letter by many of, um, from many kind of leading personalities and um, firms involved in um or corporate leaders, I should say, involved in AI, um, making the case that we should kind of call a moratorium or a six-month hiatus on um, competition over AI. So, Alex, you had a piece um, which you you know um, which is particularly good on this. Tell us about it. So, I mean, there's one piece I thought was useful um, by a former guest of the podcast, uh, Jason Walsh, making the point with regard to um, this letter calling for from Silicon Valley types calling for a halt to AI. Um, we need to shut it down until we can figure out what's going on. Um, I, I adjust. But, um, you know, his point, and I think it's absolutely correct, is that we should be very skeptical of these calls, not because um, we should be welcoming every new technological development with open arms and uncritically, but rather that who, who the people who are making um, this 
um, who are making these skeptical remarks with regard to AI are um, precisely the, the people who push so much other kind of tech. And that means, and, and that they, the, the nature of their focus ends up being on the technology rather than on um, property relations, broadly put, but, you know, basically on, on the fact that they are not critical of big tech, right? They're just critical of the technology. And for that reason, um, we should be a little bit questioning of what the motives are. Yeah, I mean, he says he goes a bit because he says basically, you know, it's happening in the same context as you had the bailout for Silicon Valley Bank. And he says this speaks to just how kind of starry eyed policymakers and financial regulators and other regulators are with respect to the tech sector, that they believe everything it says. And so I understood him to be making the case more that the reason we should be skeptical of the demand for a moratorium is because these are people who basically pull um, policymakers by the nose and they already have far too much influence. And so we shouldn't buy their, you know, we shouldn't buy their bullshit. And their bullshit is not evident in the fact that, you know, AI chat GPT is going to become like Skynet and take over the world, but rather things like the bailout of um, the Silicon Valley bank financial crisis. That is where it's dangerous. Um, And that the risk to, you know, the risk to... um, well, the risk to white collar job is the way in which various, you know, kind of, um, as he says, uh, machine filtering job applications and the ways in which job applications are processed already is a much more kind of immediate and pressing threat to white collar jobs than any kind of future revolutionary wave of restructuring as a right. result of AI. And and that relates a little bit to Tyler Cowen's call for radical agnosticism. Now, I don't buy that. Specifically, that approach, I have problems with that. We can maybe come on to that. But um, it at least it, it fo- pushes us to think about kind of much more banal dangers than, um, you know, kind of dystopian dreams of where AI may actually go. I, I, in fact, I think Tyler Cowen's proposal is like, wow, it could go anywhere um, is, is, a, is, is a worse way of approaching it than just being simply skeptical of a lot of the claims made around it. Hmm. Yeah, the open letter came from. Uh, sorry, George, you wanted to come in. No, I was just going to say you mentioned Skynet, and of course, this has been like the Terminator films or franchises. I guess you basically call it. That's like one picture of of doom. That's one scare story or tale. But I don't know if either of you have seen Megan, the um, film from last year. No, it's a good. It's it's worth a watch. I don't want to give too much of spoilers away, but the of course, like the idea behind Skynet is, you know, the the AI becomes, spoiler alert if you haven't seen Terminator, um, basically the AI becomes conscious and tries to destroy humanity. But Megan's a bit subtler in that, um, how do I how do I do this without giving too much away? The, the AI changes or has an impact on the way that the humans relate to each other, particularly Alison Williams's character, who's, who's basically plays the same person in every film, but is, is very good nonetheless. The idea being that AI to the extent that it can do things it it undermines the the human relationship so it doesn't stand as this kind of big enemy that's going to destroy and take over the world but it does tell a different kind of like story which is like if if there are things which are you know human things that we can outsource to ai this is going to negatively affect the the quality of our relationships well that would be my reading at least so i think there are you know maybe we are if this is a real kind of potential technological revolution then we're going to have a you know, a, a bit more, a bit wider set of um, potential 
like horror stories or like cautionary tales than just um, Skynet to refer to in the in the near future. It just doesn't it doesn't feel to me like it's of you know that level. Like in Cowan's piece, he says the the, the printing press it had good things, scientific industrial revolutions, but it also had bad things like Lenin, Mao, Hitler. <laughs> like okay well what are the you know what are the kind kind of going to be the the peaks and troughs of ai yeah, it doesn't so, really seem it's so banal when them. he says something like that um the other point i wanted to make which comes from the jason walsh piece which um listeners will see in the show notes is um i think i mean well two things in fact so the open letter is um organized or it's kind of put together by part of the future of life institute and if people miss this this is this kind of uh, new form of uh, long-termism which is all focused on how we need to integrate like uh, millions of years of future human development into our every kind of calculated decision today and they got this kind of weird form of um, galactic utilitarianism, it got a knock back, right? Because Sam Bankman-Fried, who is the guy arrested for recently for the um, the FTX kind of um, crypto scam, he was like a big supporter of this um, and was one of its kind of um, leading stars. So I think um, they've had a serious knockback, the kind of intellectual movement associated with future of life. And it's... Um, a big part of the way in which Silicon Valley kind of justifies its own inflated sense of um, of worth and its kind of, you know, oligarchical ideology. And they need to re-legitimate themselves, right? So I think calling for the moratorium on an AI is partly a way for them to recover from the fiasco of a Sam Bankman-Fried. But the other element of it, I thought, is um, I think it's a call from Silicon Valley for cartelization, I think they're basically kind of, they're not really asking for, um, they're not really asking for, you know, kind of a halt to research and investigation and technological development. What they're asking for is the government to organize, to more explicitly organize the sector in such a way that they don't have to bear the kind of costs and risks of competition. So that they're organized in such a way that they're all going to kind of get a good slice of the pie where while they maintain their status um, and that they will be insulated from the risk of like um, they're having their kind of monopolistic positions overthrown and that they get an infusion of kind of, um, you know, financial, both political attention with respect to um, AI research happening in China or Russia or wherever, so that they're seen to be at the forefront of America's geopolitical defenses in a new era of um, rivalry with enemy powers uh, and political attention. So I read it kind of, um, perhaps I'm overreading it, but I saw the letter as um, it wasn't it shouldn't be taken at face value in terms of what it was asking for. I think it was more kind of trying to get more political attention on the sector by way of hoping that political intervention and government regulation will be beneficial for, um, for the sector. And it, but it, it kind of does that pitch by trying to scare, you know, ordinary citizens, scare the public at large into this, fear of a runaway technology that no one's in charge of and that our enemies might be exploiting yeah i mean it's a it's it's not a bad kind of sales um pitch or like strategy for silicon valley though i mean if you can get the uh the state to off to basically offset any risks in in developing 
new technologies and then you can privatize the gains if and when they do occur that's you know why would you not go for that um i guess that's not exactly how i read it but that is probably the ultimate like the ultimate goal of ai boosters i guess not just to promote their own profile but there is a you know there is a a definite interest material interest in having the state under underwrite any kind of development yeah, in this but and but there's also the other thing that if you look at um sort of communications in you know information communications technology over the past decade or more uh you get obviously the the general thrust of things is that no innovation must be halted right that's generally been the thrust of things um no move should be made against big tech everything that is created will bring us closer together make our lives better and um make um the economy more efficient right and the only moves that are made against it are at most something like eu regulators looking to you know break up google for example which might yet happen incidentally but you know that's relatively minor and doesn't never concerns the technology itself it can only be done from a neoliberal perspective of making the market work better of breaking up the big techs um, so that they might compete more efficiently and and so on so there's no real deeper questioning of of the technology at the same time there's a cultural narrative which is full of dystopian imaginaries many of which involve ai and robots and so on running amok now that seems to me to be a, a certain you know an apparent paradox where we're all running around with these images in our head of like all the terrible stuff that technology will do to us and the trope of you know the ai is going to come and steal your job and all this while at the same time politics is completely unresponsive to to you know even in a regulatory sense um to a lot of technological innovations so on one level you might say well, that's just the way that things are today right we are um, critical of all these things that are happening in politics and politics seems completely intractable but i don't think that's exactly what's going on here i think there's something else i think that um to a certain extent the ai boosterism and the dystopian imaginaries go together because they both imagine that it, technology is going to come in and transform everything when the reality is it isn't and the ways that it is changing things are in much more banal ways merely accelerating or continuing um, processes which have already been ongoing, for example, um, deindustrialization or um, the shedding of, of, of jobs, downskilling of people, making the machine your boss rather than the machine stealing your job. Um, and, you know, this is happening in terms of you know, surveillance, probably most prominently of all, but not only. I remember there was a great piece, I'll try to dig it up and put it in the show notes, about Amazon workers and about how, well, basically the machine is your new boss rather than it being um, someone you know, this thing that's stealing your job. Anyway, so I, I think, I guess to, to round this out, there's there's something, I guess the, 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 the fear mongers and the boosters um, are complicit with politicians who don't do anything and the general uncritical attitude towards technology. And I, ironically, the dystopian visions are also complicit with an uncritical attitude. We need to be a little bit more concrete and a little bit more basic and less hysterical in, in general about this stuff so i mean you know so jason walsh is generally skeptical right about the um ai breakthrough you know he says kind of it's um it's the sharp edge of a 80 year long process of um in which you know we've been on the brink of kind of ai for a very long time there were hopes right at the beginning um you know with the early computers 
that there was going to be very rapid development of um, of genuinely artificial intelligence. And so, you know, he kind of, he enjoins kind of caution, skepticism, says the real issues at stake are the influence, you know, the kind of the grip that Silicon Valley has both on the imagination, but also on the public imagination and political imagination, but also, you know, kind of on the... Um, the hose pipes of the American Central Bank. They can turn seems like they can turn them on and off at will as a consequence of the S of the Silicon Valley bank collapse. Um the only he does give a bit, he concedes a bit on the question of quantum computing, where he says though, you know, it's kind of whatever happens with quantum computing, the breakthrough seems a long way off. But that that you know, there is kind of the possibility of a genuinely radical kind of technological breakthrough, but that doesn't seem to be either investable or, um, you know, likely to happen in any kind of um, meaningful time scale. And so he cautions like, you know, generally kind of skepticism um, and deflationary, you know, he kind of pricks the bubble. And that, I, I suppose my question is then whether or not that is more persuasive than uh, Tyler Cowen's argument for, as he puts it, radical agnosticism. That there will be, you know, that there is, we are on the brink of um, of technological upheaval, but that it is so far-reaching and so dramatic and so transformative that it is pointless to try and, at this stage at least, it's pointless to try and adjudicate between which scenario is more likely than another. I think the the problem with that kind of radical agnosticism is it's like, well, you know, you can't, you can say that at any given point in time, basically, like the, this thing which is going to change everything is just around the corner. Uh, and it's, I don't know, it just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right to me. I mean, it doesn't have the right vibes, doesn't have the right feels. I guess it's kind of like an, an obvious point, but to go, to go back to like, you know, talking about the end of the end of history and technological change, there is a, there is that sense of political exhaustion that leads people, as Alex was basically saying, that leads people to that kind of tech utopianism. If only we could just break out of this, like this double negative of the end of the end of history with this technological thing, which is going to change the stakes and is going to change the actors. Well, that's kind of wishful thinking to put it mildly, but there is also a more direct material link, I think, that it is that political exhaustion which leads to technological stagnation there isn't the that those conditions of class conflict which perhaps previously were precisely what had driven the the need to innovate and the need to produce things which will reflect and change um you know different you know, changing social relations so i think there is i think i'm skeptical i think i'm more towards the the kind of the skeptical side of things because i don't see the um the conditions m existing that make ai being transformative more likely of course you know there's always the possibility you can never count it out that something you know can happen that nobody ever predicted but to the extent that material conditions determine technological changes and it's obviously a complex relationship i just it just doesn't feel to me that that like quality that complete like game changer is just around the corner so we should be kind of i don't know exactly how tyler Cam would put it but we should be sort of pr primed and ready to spring um, 
when this new sort of technology mm. imposes itself. But Prime did ready to spring in what direction? I mean, I think that's, you know, that's the problem with Tyler Cowen's approach, radical and like anything might happen and anything major drastic might happen with the technology, right? So it might suddenly emerge and be really terrible, or it might emerge and be really good. His, what he seems to counsel is we should start doing AI and choosing what we want to do with AI because it's coming anyway. It's a bit I, more it, than that. Have a, have a go bag. Uh, it's clever. Yeah. Huh? It's cleverer than that, I think. He's saying that these changes are already underway. And so you can't kind of, you can't absent yourself from the picture or imagine that you're standing outside of history. Well, so I, mean, I think, you so, know, that was the only good point, in fact, in I'd say in the, or the strongest point, at least in the post. So, I mean, I think it would make more sense to think about what is important to us and focus on doing those things than on preparing for the technology or, um, you know, based on some idea that, something major is going to be transformed. So, for example, if we think that it would be important to keep good um, white-collar jobs and not make everything um, post-human, then we should go about safeguarding those jobs, irrespective of the fact of the technology coming and coming to displace those jobs. Because there's nothing necessarily inevitable about technology, though, of course, the force of tech of capitalist competition means that it often um, makes it uh, makes that kind of the drive for profit circumvent whatever our intentions might be, right? So that um, people are able to outcompete one company over another, and therefore, um, are able to introduce a, you know, AI takes the place of all sorts of clerks and journalists and whatever. Um, but, you know, I think if you're able to put in a, a, you know, political order in place, which puts a hold to these things, then maybe, maybe that's what you should be doing rather than fantasizing about what technology might, might do on its own as if we have no place in this and we must only adapt. It seems to me the new version of globalization theory, globalization is like the weather said Tony Blair, and you just have to kind of make sure to look it up and put on a jacket uh, if it's going to rain or if it's going to, you know, whatever, put on your boots if it's going to snow. Um, and so there's a kind of passivity to this, you know, the, what are the, what are, what are the, you know, kind of waves of technology that are going to wash over us? Yeah, I take that point. I suppose I would, um, I suppose it's worth, you know, it seems to me that the most you could say for it, at least at this point, is that it is going to peel off a layer of, like we say, kind of white collar, administrative, clerical style jobs, um, in in professions like journalism, like law, various types of administration, hopefully management consultancy as well, um, insurance perhaps, you know. And so, and that will reinforce, I mean, but it seems to me that will kind of reinforce trends that are already there in as much as you have like um, part of, you know, white collar jobs are already being gouged by globalization um, and the growing acceptance that corporations can do, you know, through working from home, online meetings, um, Zoom and what have you, that's already they're kind of outsourcing white collar jobs in a way that they um, haven't done previously. So, you know, AI could kind of accelerate that, but that trend is already underway, right? And it's not specifically linked to AI, but rather to already long existing internet technology. And the other element to me, I suppose, is, you know, that how much of our how much of like, you know, it's a point we've made before, but I think a lot of the kind of the froth of contemporary kind of, or the bitterness, the bitter froth, I suppose, of contemporary public life and politics is partly driven, it's less by technology than by the economics kind of surrounding um, 
you know, surrounding kind of ordinary life. And so how far AI affects those things would seem to me to be, you know, if people are also, if white collar professionals um, are struggling, say, with high house prices and then are also in threat of losing their job or having it completely restructured as a result of AI, then, you know, um, their kind of uh, responses might become even more deranged than they already are. Um, But again, it's kind of amplifying things that are already there. So yeah, then, there's, there's. I guess there is something like the who are the who are the potential like the the social constituency for like an anti AI movement. Like, are there enough people who feel their their jobs or you know their livelihoods to be to be threatened by AI to kind of I don't know what the Luddite equivalent would be, but to kind of you know to to smash AI to kind of um, somehow try and throw the the clog in the in the machine as it were. Um, it doesn't. I, again, it seems like it's well, that's very. That's what the Silicon Valley oligarchs are doing, isn't that a luddite response? Let's call a moratorium to research. No, I don't think so, because they're like the owners of the older technologies, which are being replaced by the new loom. To extend the example, um, they're not the people operating at the loom and, and feeling like this is horrible and alienating or whatever and difficult and dangerous so i'm just i I, yeah i mean i need to maybe think about that a little bit more but that that moratorium as as you were kind of like describing earlier phil it doesn't seem like a it seems more like an economic maneuver than a kind of here's how i've experienced this technology and here's like why i I hate it or i'm not even going to say whether i like it or not i'm just gonna like i'm gonna break it at work well it's it, it, notable that in mike judge's office space they go and the office workers go and take out a, a printer which they hate because it always malfunctions a printer copier and beat the crap out of it with um baseball bats and of course they're not even it's not even really a protest it's more just a venting of frustration because they know they can't really do anything about it they're not destroying their looms um which will impede kind of the new modernized form of capitalist production they're just want to beat the crap out of the printer which you've always wanted to do and now you're doing it and it feels good and that's it it's kind of ironic right you go from the printing press and celebrating that to destroying printers that's the the kind of the the full the full circle of um nice yeah capitalist i I suppose i suppose what i was getting at is that i'm you know i'm drawn to the welsh over the cowan in terms of the argument i mean perhaps i'm being complacent because i feel and maybe mistakenly so i feel like i'm Perhaps I'm in a profession which is un, you know, less under threat, at least uh, at my end of things. Like to be fair, I do secretly entertain. Well, not so secretly, even I do entertain the fond hope that um, AI will kind of cut a swathe through um, quantitative political science. Because if it reaches a stage where you can kind of get it to write code for you to run your statistical models and whatnot without having to do it yourself. Um, you know, that seems to, that will prove the point that a whole uh, lifetime's worth of uh, academics wasted their lives and careers on developing pointless skills that could easily be automated. I think the so real, that would be, I think the reveal is going to be that actually this has been happening already for the last 10 years <laughs> of quantitative political science. But no, I think you're being really unfair on any of our listeners with advanced um, stator or R. Or SPSS skills. No, 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 no. I'm not. No, so I'm not on code. Not on coders. You know, because there will be room for coders to do the stuff. You know, not your basic app building stuff that the AI will eventually be able to do. But I'm on quantitative political scientists. Um, and we might. I'm to be fair. We might have some of those. 
Um, but yeah, I would say like, you know, it's time to kind of crack open the Adorno and the Marcuse. It's time to get really, um, you know, wacky, turn to the Agamben and the, um, the post-human kind of critical theories, <laughs> time to leave behind uh, the coding. Um, so uh, anyway, maybe not, you know, we'll see. Um, but it's only to say that um, I, I think I side with Walsh's kind of deflationary, skeptical outlook more than um, more than with uh, with with Cowan's kind of so-called radical agnosticism, and also at the same time to be alert to, as Walsh says, what's happening behind the hype and the froth of the debate. Um, you know, which is more to do with kind of public imagination political maneuvering and also, you know, actual grip on certain kind of policy levers, not least the ability, it seems that they can just pull the kind of the, um, you know, the lever for cash whenever they want it. Anyway, all that said, I mean, I think, you know, there is a sentiment that's worth endorsing from the Cowan, um, which, which is he finishes on this thought, which I guess we can leave our discussion and leave it with our listeners. He says, quote, so we should take the plunge. If someone is obsessively arguing about the details of AI technology today and the arguments on less wrong from 11 years ago, they won't see this. Don't be suckered into taking their bait. The longer a historic perspective you take, the more obvious this point will be. We should take the plunge. We already have taken the plunge. We designed tolerated our decentralized society so we could take the plunge. See you all on the other side. I think that's a good bunga sentiment right there. All right. Well, um, we hope you enjoyed this. And we have recently unlocked um, the episode that we did in the Reading Club uh, on AI capitalism, which came out at the very beginning of December 2022. If you, uh, listener, are not a $10 subscriber and don't follow the Reading Club, you can check that out and have a listen to what that's like. And uh, if you like that, you know, um, I think it firstly builds on this discussion and sustains this discussion we've had today quite a bit, uh, as well as also maybe being an entry point for you to the Reading Club if you want to join the 2023 version of it. Okay, that's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. It's hard to understate the kind of banality of the pod. Uh, Freudian slip there. It's hard to understate. What are you doing with the microphone? Just leave it in the around. You're talking about technology and you're just like undercutting the whole conversation. Yeah. Yeah.